Electric class. Gas class. Horse class. Okay, welcome to Aliens Land here. And today it's going to be more Tesla stuff. (laughs) Maybe some iPad Pro stuff. Hooray. I mean, I'm sure all those non-Tesla fans just would love to hear more about Tesla on our podcast. Of course. So let's start with uh, an error that I made when I was talking about the Model 3 before, and I said that it was an inductance motor. That was what was on the that is what's on the S and the X, but <clears throat> what's on the three is permanent magnet reluctance motor, and uh, that's the thing that's easier to cool. Uh, though the the performance version of the Model 3 has both, one of each, actually, a permanent magnet reluctance as well as uh, an inductance motor. Do you remember which one was on the front and which one was on the back? So the induction motor is in the front and the reluctance motor, the permanent magnet reluctance motor is in the rear. Huh, interesting. So my guess is because they want it to be uh, sort of better for track use and the since the reluctance motor is easier to cool um and since the rear wheels are generally going to have more of the load that's why they that's why they want to do it so speaking of performance has there been any kind of word what kind of motor is going to be on the roadster there's no word on which motors they're going to use but there's going to be three motors uh one motor in the front and two motors in the rear i mean i'm thinking they would have to optimize specifically for cooling considering how fast the car is going to be able to go. Yeah, they want it to go fast and they want it to be... And during their demonstrations, they had said that they can do the acceleration runs all day long. So I assume that uh, they they want it to be cooled pretty well. So my guess would be probably permanent reluctance motors for all of them, but who knows? Well, that also brings up an interesting point. Uh, does that mean that eventually do you see the Model S and the Model X getting reluctance motors instead? I would think so, but who knows? I'm sure there's some sort of trade-off. Yeah, it's just sometimes when it comes to technology, you don't know if it's a matter of trade-off or if it's just a matter of the technology being new. It's difficult to tell for sure. So uh, you were saying there was a Tesla update that allows multiple apps on screen now. Sort of. So people got very angry, like I did, that the update to the Model S and X basically made things worse. And you could no longer put, for example, the camera at the top of the screen. uh, You didn't get what I was hoping for, which was being able to have the music and the camera on at the same time. And so Tesla did an update that kind of fixed this in that you can have the music plus one other app plus navigation up at the same time, basically by continuing to pull up on the window, it will go and stick music at the bottom of it. And so I can have the camera at the top now if I want no navigation up and the music to be at the bottom. Um, so do you find that you're happy with this kind of setup or do you still find that wanting? I really wish that I could do an arbitrary thing wherever and have the music up along with two arbitrary things. But 
for the way that I use it, it's mostly okay. I mean, it's still uglier than it was before because it had it's not like a clean, full usage of the whole area. It looks like a window. But um, it's it's definitely better than it was like right after the update. I also remember you saying that you were complaining about it not remembering specific settings about having the specific app up in place. Have they fixed that as well? Not really. See, the problem is that whenever I tell it to go navigate somewhere, it bring it makes the navigation full screen. And so usually I'm going in reverse when I'm telling it to navigate to something. So as soon as I tell it to go to navigate somewhere, it removes my backup camera, and then I have to go and put it back up to continue going in reverse to finish uh, what I'm doing. Oh, God, I know that feeling. In our Toyota Sequoia, we have it where I put it in reverse and the camera ends up coming on. And then if I put in something into navigation, it specifically keeps the map on in navigation. Mm -hmm. And the only way for me to get the camera back is to put the car in park and then put it back in reverse. Well, it's not quite as bad here because I can just go and launch the camera app, but it's still pretty annoying. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm, at least with Tesla, I have some faith that with enough complaints that uh, they will address it in some way or another. And I mean, what we've seen over the past month or so is still better than what was there before. Yeah, it, they've, they've fixed my major complaints, though a lot of people are still upset that they can't just do arbitrary things like they could before. Uh, do you see that as version 10? I really hope so. Speaking of making things worse... Uh, Tesla announced that they are streamlining their options on the Model S and X. And in particular, this meant that they are removing the jump seats option and they are removing the sunroof option. Yeah, I wasn't happy to see that. I mean, the jump seats, I don't have children, but I looked at the jump seats as something that was nice and unique to the Model S. I mean, after all, in the case of a Model 3, you don't have those specific sort of jump seats in a Model 3. So it's kind of nice to say, if you spend a little bit more on a Model S, you can still have a car that ends up seating seven instead of five people. Yeah, and so Tesla is basically saying, hey, if you really have uh, seven people that you need to see, go and get a Model X. But I, I don't want a Model X because in addition to looking like an angry jelly bean, it's slower and it doesn't handle as well. Part of the appeal when I was getting the Model S in the first place is being able to see my kids and grandparents, or my kids' grandparents, uh, at the same time when they came to visit. And now I can't do that anymore if I were to upgrade my car and I don't want a Model X, but it's not like there's anything else out there that I could buy um, because there isn't anything with the performance of the Model S that also seats seven people that just doesn't exist. Yeah, true. So I I guess my only option is to go and I I don't know, buy a used P100D when the time comes. Yeah. So did you see some of the other changes that were there? They mar- they changed around like prices a bit. Like mm-hmm. the base price for both the Model S and the Model X is about $1000 higher. That's not a huge deal. The the 100D is now a little bit cheaper. Um I'm guessing that 
their efficiencies in making larger battery packs are coming into play, and they're probably trying to start phasing out the smaller battery packs. They also now have the premium interior as standard, which they probably should have done a while ago, and it's probably to try and differentiate the car from the Model 3. And then there's the cost of paint. Previously, when you got a Model S, the uh, regular black would be, you know, the uh, fixed price. But then if you wanted something like blue or silver or whatnot, it would end up being $1,000 more. And if you wanted either the dual coat white or the dual coat red, it would end up being $1,500. Now, anything besides black, like for instance, uh, you know, getting blue or getting silver is now $1,500 more. If you want dual coat white, it is $2,000 more. And if you want red, it is $2,500 more. That's because red looks the best. And I mean, not to mention that there were colors that they ended up taking out that you can no longer get in your Tesla. Really too bad, since I do like my my red Tesla. So, I mean, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, okay, what are they trying to do with all of these options? Like, um, for the paint, my thought is that they're trying to convince people in any way possible to get a Tesla that is a little more expensive than the $35,000 base model. They, they also changed the prices for the paint on the Model 3? Yeah, uh, it is. It turns out that the pricing is the same. It is included for solid black. If you want it in silver and blue, it is $1,500. If you want it in pearl white, it is $2,000. And if you want it in red, it is $2,500 more on a Model 3. Yeah, that really sounds like they're trying to bump up the prices on the Model 3. And that just sort of happens that Model S and the Model X got uh, caught in the crossfire? That's probably not the right word. If you want wheels that are not ugly as sin, that is another $1,500. Well, that was the case before, right? Yeah, it was the case before. I feel like the wheels are kind of anti-Tesla, and that one of the main appeals about getting a Tesla was that you could get a car that didn't look like a funky electric car. Kind of like how the Prius is a funky-looking hybrid car. Right. And uh, these standard wheels that come in the Model 3, sure, they're supposed to shave off a little bit of wind drag, but they're ugly as sin. And if you want regular wheels, then, well, yeah, that's going to cost you more money. D- does that decrease the range? I think that decreases the range if you use the sport wheels. Yeah, that's my understanding. So it- I left the the aero wheel covers on but um my family my brother-in-law and my sister couldn't handle it and they they took their aero covers off to make their wheels look better so you don't actually have to buy the sport wheels to make your wheels look nicer you just have to take the aero covers off but um yeah the by default they're they're not great looking okay well that's good to know I imagine, though, the way they have that on the website, that most people who are ordering one aren't going to realize that. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah, they're just going to say, okay, well, this looks a lot better. Eh, sure, fine, I'll spend the money. Mm-hmm. If you get a red Model 3 and the 19-inch sport wheels, you're already looking at $4,000 more. Yeah, and that probably is enough to help them break even. 
Yeah, I know that it's nowhere near $4,000 worth of paint and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, nicer wheel. It's just something to pretty much goose the margin. Yeah, it would be interesting to know just how much more that red paint costs them than their normal black paint. You you think it's more than like a hundred (laughs) bucks? I would be surprised. I'd be really surprised. But then again, it says that it is multi-coat. Yeah. So, I mean, they they are doing a separate pass, but I don't know how much that would be Mm -hmm. financially to them. Yeah. So the other thing with this that was big was the removal of the sunroof. So you now have to, you have to get the all glass. And I know that that would be annoying for you since you like the open tops, right? Uh, I did. However, what I'm thinking here is that they're eventually going to go the way of the Model X, where the Model X has a nice slab of glass that doesn't have any sort of divider between the windshield and the top part of the car. And if they go that way on the Model S, that's actually going to be a decent amount nicer. And uh, having a sunroof just isn't compatible with that kind of design, I don't think. The problem there is when you remove the sunroof with a Model S, you also remove another thing that's pretty important. And that would be you can no longer put a roof rack on it. And this is matters for a lot of people um, because the roof rack was a sunroof option only kind of thing. And particularly in Europe, where they like to haul some extra stuff around with them, a lot of people have trailers there. And since the Tesla Model S has no hitch, uh, they can't haul a trailer. So the option is to put a container on the top of the car, which now they can't do. Hmm. I hadn't thought of that. Interesting. And there is an aftermarket Tesla Model X, or sorry, Tesla Model S, uh, trailer hitch, but apparently due to regulations in Europe, those aren't allowed there, uh, even though they are allowed with lower capacities here. I was thinking about it that um, I had to confirm for a moment to see if the Model X even had a sunroof option at any point, and of course it wouldn't because of the because of the doors. Yeah, <laughs> this is this this is it. They're they're planning on putting Falcon Wing doors in the Model S. Oh, God help us all. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, overall, in some ways, it's nicer. And in some ways, it's just awful. Mm -hmm. That, I mean, from a functionality standpoint, they're taking out things that people actually are using. Like, I mean, people needing a roof rack on their car and people who want to put their children in the back. This is our this this is our part of our master plan. You, You read it there. See, we start at the high end and then we gradually make things worse. Yeah. You just didn't realize we were going to do it on the same car. Yeah. I And I mean, I, I feel like an old person, you know, just going over this saying, oh, God, things are getting worse from year to year. <laughs> and I mean, to me, this is kind of like the headphone jack being removed from the phones. Mm-hmm. Yes, this is a very Apple move. Yeah. That you're, uh, you know, you're purposely alienating a specific subset of people who are who definitely use this one feature. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, like, with the higher end cars, normally, like, I mean, Tesla already had fewer options than pretty much anyone else in the segment. And now, I mean, they, they didn't really have any need to simplify it further usually this is where people want to go nuts the people that want to spend more money want to have it something more like their own thing we didn't even cover the interior part how did that go again 
there are only three possible interiors on the Model S if you get a non-performance edition. Mm-hmm. And there are now only two possible interiors if you get a performance edition. Oh, yeah. And both of them have carbon fiber. Yes. Like, uh, I want to say even a month ago or so, you could still have the option to not get carbon fiber on your performance edition. Mm. But now, nope. Oh, well. It's just, it's disappointing to me because uh, on my old Tesla, I had the uh, black piano trim. Mm -hmm. I actually, I like glossy trim. Mm -hmm. And in this performance edition, you have no choice but to have a carbon fiber matte option. Yeah. I also have the uh, piano black. Well, the spoiler's now included on the performance edition. Yay? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I'm not a huge spoiler fan in the first place. And... I don't know how much it helped or how much it helps. Uh, I have no idea. I mean, mine mine had a spoiler and it was a carbon fiber spoiler, but thankfully the spoiler is small enough that it doesn't, uh, you know, it's not like one of those spoilers that stick three feet off of the uh, back of your car. Yeah, it wasn't a giant wing. Right. I mean, it was subtle. I would have loved it if it had been the same color as the paint of the car, but nope. Mm-hmm. Because they want to show that it's carbon fiber. Well, also, I think they're looking for a design cue that shows that the car's performance other than just the badging that's there. And I, I, I like it to be subtle. Yeah, me too. If I wanted obvious, I would have gone and gotten a, an STI or something. <laughs> a GTR. <laughs> One of the, a Civic Type R. There's something that's <laughs> in your right. face. What I loved about the Tesla is that the Model S was subtle in that you couldn't tell immediately by looking at the car that it was a fast car, and you couldn't tell immediately by looking at the car that it was an electric car. Mm-hmm. Unless you already knew that it was what it was, yeah. Yeah. But it does have a very sort of Aston Martin-y shape. I mean, Tesla, I've heard a lot of different design cues. Like um, a lot of different comparisons between different cars, at least when they first came out. Uh, speaking of uh, speaking of like uh, cars being a um, combination between one car and another, have you seen those really annoying Chevy commercials? No. Okay. What is this? <laughs> so um, Chevy has these commercials with real people. Where they always, they get, uh, they filter out the most enthusiastic, quote unquote, real people you can find and uh, show them their car Ah. in some way or another and try and sell these really enthusiastic people on Chevy. Is this a, we've replaced your normal coffee with Folgers crystals kind of thing? Kind of, yeah. There is actually a commercial that's like that. (laughs) And uh, there was, they have this fake guy that uh, is interjected in the commercial on the, on this YouTube parody. And the fake guy is named Mach. Okay. M A H K. And they pretty much make the commercial seem completely terrible. (laughs) Like, uh, like for instance, there was one, there was one commercial where they took the badging off of a Chevy Malibu. And uh, they're asking the people, what kind of car is this? And they're like, I don't know. One person's like, I don't know. This is a BMW Tesla hybrid. Okay. That is pretty awful. And the guy Mark and the guy Mark is like, "Ah, there's no such thing as that." That sounds really awful. Yeah, that's that sounds that's friends. No. No. 
bad, 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 bad. <laughs> BMW <laughs> Tesla hybrid. If the I8 and a Model S had a baby. <laughs> Just thinking about all this, now is really not the time to get a Tesla. Yeah. Um, I mean, they got rid of the any sort of free supercharging. I don't think they even have the whole month of free supercharging anymore. I think they have a, if, if you have a referral, you get like $100 credit. Oh, boy. <laughs> and then uh, they got rid of the full self-driving option. So, yeah, I understand that that's kind of bad, especially if you got it two years ago and you're reaching the end of you, your lease. You you can still get it, but you have to specifically request it as an off-menu item. Oh, interesting. Okay. That's actually good to know. Yeah. Because I, I was thinking about... Um, the fact that uh, Elon Musk goes on Twitter and goes on their conference call and says that new autopilot hardware is six to 12 months away. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, okay, I am, if I get a Tesla right now, I am then going to immediately have to drop another, I don't know, five to $6,000 mm-hmm. on a replacement, on replacement hardware, as opposed to waiting the six to 12 months and not having to do that at all. Right. And then there's the interior design is uh, going to be redone next year. Mm -hmm. But then, of course, it may be worse than the existing product that's out right now. This is very true. So we might be uh, talking a year from now about, oh, God, we should have ordered a Tesla last year. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I think that ship has sailed. (laughs) It's already (laughs) too late. (laughs) <laughs> yeah so uh, i'm gonna invent a time machine now and i'm going to use that to go back and uh get a uh, well unless you want a model three the model three is as good or better as it has ever been so yeah. if this is only for people who want to model s the tax credit is going away at the end of the year i think that if you buy a high-end model three or model s or x you can still get it in in time before the end of the year, but otherwise you're going to be stuck with the $3,500 instead of the 7000 or whatever. That's right. You can spend another $25,000 to save 3750 Yeah, but if you wanted that stuff anyway. Yeah, but if you are getting a nice car, that's fair. The, the Washington State credit is why we got our Model 3 when we did, um, because it was about to go away. Oh, okay. Yeah, basically, if the the credit there is well, it wasn't really a credit. It was you don't have to pay sales tax on the first thirty five thousand on the car, and since sales tax is close to ten percent here, that was pretty significant. Oh, that is pretty nice. So, did that go away entirely, or has it been? Yeah, that's gone now. It went up for being put back in, but it didn't make it. So, I mean, one of the things that I really hope changes is that I hope that the um, federal tax credit is changed when it comes to electric cars. Like how so? Like, well, what I would like is that I don't want the $7,500 credit to go away for cheaper cars. Mm -hmm. So for instance, if you want to get a car that is under $40,000, I think that the $7,500 tax credit should stay for, you know, for at least the next five years or so. And then eventually push it down market where um, eventually when cars... Electric cars can be made for $30,000 MSRP or $25,000 MSRP that you end up applying the tax credit to that. See, I think that the a sort of a sliding scale makes more sense. And I realize that people don't want to give 
tax credits to people who are already making a ton of money uh, for the S and X, but it seems like you're sort of discouraging those people from getting an electric vehicle also. So I, I think sort of a sliding thing, like the um, like the first X number of dollars is um, it, you, you get progressively more off. And then after a certain amount, it just cuts off completely. In the case of a $140,000 car, I don't think there should be any sort of tax credit on that because people who are buying $100,000 cars aren't necessarily doing it for... Uh, they're not factoring in financial reasons as much into their purchase, if at all. Probably well, right. within, <laughs> I mean, well, within within limits. It was certainly a it was certainly a factor for me. So you wouldn't have got a Tesla if they didn't have a seventy five hundred dollar credit. That I'm not sure about, but it was it was certainly something that I was thinking about. You would have ended up getting a ninety D at the time instead of a P ninety D. Um, it might have been a P ninety D versus like a. I don't know, a Porsche or something, though. Oh, okay. Hmm. Interesting. And and I think that, like, even encouraging people that have more money to, to, to buy an electric car instead of a gasoline car is still worth it. But what I'm seeing here is what I ultimately want is encouragement on two fronts. I want to have the electric car companies be encouraged to actually sell cars for cheaper and cheaper. I don't know if it's a limit with whether or not they can actually effectively make a car for $35,000, but what I think it also is is that they're trying to avoid that at all cost. Like, um, if they can continue to sell Model 3s that are within the $45,000 range instead of the $35,000 range, they're going to continue to do so and prioritize people who are willing to pay that kind of money. But on the other hand, if you add a significant tax incentive for cars that are underneath a certain price, you're going to change the demand immensely. Like uh, if you're going to make sure that, say, for instance, the tax credit only applies to cars that are under $35,000, well, then immediately you're going to have cars that are $35,000 be available for twenty seven five, mm-hmm. And then anything above that is going to have a significant jump. So it's going to encourage the car companies to make sure that if they can make their cars cheaper and cheaper, well, then you're going to have the volume. Okay. So the way that it was in Washington before they had this was um, it only applied to cars with a base price under, I think, 37000 or something like that. And so since the Model 3 technically had a base price of 35000 even though nobody could actually buy them, they qualified. And then, it, and then the and then the the lack of taxes for the first thirty five thousand of it. But is that fair in any sort of way whatsoever? Because after all, you can get a Model Three that's thirty five thousand, but then you can get one that's close to, closer to eighty. That's true. Yeah, and I mean that's that's part of the loophole that I see happening here. Is that sure? If you do that sort of thing, sure, you're going to have cars that are, you know, thirty five thousand dollar base. Yeah, but uh, it's going to, they're pretty much going to push it up into the range of uh, upper middle class Americans being able to get the car immediately only. And what we realistically want is we want a giant, you know, we want giant availability of cars that are cheap and competitive with an average car. Mm -hmm. And right now the Model 3 just isn't that. But they, I mean, they're, they're trying to scale up so they are. And the, the, the credits for, the more expensive cars helps them get there. So I, th- yeah. I mean, I, th- I think that you're 
it it's not fair to give people who already make more money additional tax credits but if your concern is selling more electric cars i certainly think it's more helpful to include those people than exclude them i mean it's not so much looking at it as people who can afford really pricey cars it's along the lines of if you're a millionaire and you want to get a car if you want to get a $35,000 car then i still think that the um that that tax credit should apply simply because it is helping apply pressure to the car companies to make cheaper cars let's say that you could brainwash congress into uh passing any sort of legislation that you want how would you structure it all electric cars are free. <laughs> well, I mean, re- reasonably. <laughs> I don't know. I, I would probably try and keep in the, the credit for what it is uh, with how it is. Um, I mean, because it disproportionately already helps the lower end cars because 7500 off a cheaper car is a much higher percentage than that amount off of a more expensive car. So it's already sort of built in. So you would just make it where instead of it expiring for each individual company, you would just keep the $7,500. Yeah, until adoption for everything is higher. Okay, what sort of adoption rate would you want to see? Have like, it gradually phases out until like 50% of all cars or 75% of all cars have it. So like it reduces sort of on a linear scale between now and our current adoption, which is what, like three, 2%, 3%. Mm-hmm. And when it gets to like 75%. And so just do a, a linear phase out for that. And so depending on where you are in uh, where you purchased in that, you get gradually less money. I'm not sure if you are aware. There was a proposition on um, the California ballot to try and repeal a gas tax. Okay. And uh, I, I actually, I have no idea whether it's passed or not. I haven't, um, I've been more caught up within the uh, other offices that are, uh, that they're counting votes on. But um, the idea was that uh, they were supposed to repeal a specific gas tax. And uh, a lot of people were saying, no, don't repeal this because there's a whole bunch of money that goes into fixing our roads and giving money to firefighters and that Mm -hmm. sort of thing. And it kind of made me think here, okay, if adoption really takes off, at what point do you actually start to, uh, you know, do you actually start to try and tax things? for uh you know tax usage for the roads and stuff so the thing is like it's already like completely messed up regular passenger vehicles do almost none of the damage to the roads compared to semis because the the damage that's done to the road is uh related to the cube of the weight on a particular surface patch and so a a truck will do something like 27,000 times more damage to the road than a regular passenger vehicle, but it doesn't pay nearly 27,000 times the the tax <laughs> to uh, operate. Hmm. So, I mean, we're already not fair. I mean, it's kind of, in a lot of ways, it's like insurance and uh, our taxes are subsidizing. Yeah, and at least with the gas tax, you're helping subsidize kind of indirectly the other externalities of using fossil fuels. But then on the other hand, um, things like buses, I think are an overall benefit, even though they are a lot heavier and do more road damage, they end up freeing up a lot of cars from the, uh, you know, from the freeways That's and the true. side streets. 
Yeah. I mean, so they have, yeah, so they have a reduced um, externality with regards to pollution and whatnot and congestion, uh, and then an increased one for road damage. You know, it would be kind of interesting is if you ended up having a tax where the gas tax doesn't apply linearly. It only applies if you get more than a certain amount of gas at a specific time. So, for instance, if you ended up having a tanker, you know, which ends up having a 50-gallon-plus tank, that you would end up paying more in taxes. But not but not linearly. Yeah, this this would totally be abused. I'm going <laughs> to go to this gas station, and then I'm going to go to that gas station, and then I'm going to go to that gas station. True, but then how much is your time worth? I that becomes know. a question as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm sure there's people who do that. Or, I mean, the other solution would be fixing it within registration. Instead of having as much in gas taxes, making it where the registration for a semi or a bus is significantly higher. Yeah. Which I'm sure it already is, but just making it more so. They, they already have uh, electric car surcharges there in registration. Um, I pay an extra $150 per vehicle just because it's electric. Oh, hmm. I don't know if California does that. I just remember my... Uh... I remember my registrations be- fees being really expensive. They were quite high for me as well. They yeah. still are. <laughs> <laughs> How long have you had that car? Uh, three years now for the Model S. Another part of the update was the autopilot on Navigate, which was not in their original update, but is now available. And so I tried that on the Model 3 a couple of days ago and it's it's interesting i i needed to switch it from mild to medium for its aggressiveness because there's like mild medium and then like mad max i didn't try mad max to see how aggressive it was but medium <laughs> seemed to work okay for doing lane changes and whatnot and you definitely have to keep an eye on it 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 wanted me to do some weird things occasionally. It doesn't always know the correct lane, though. It, it, it I'd say it knows the correct lane about 80% of the time to be in. Um, so first off, there was some confusion on whether or not it was going to change the lane automatically. It does not. It does. It pops up its suggestion. So it has a, a little drawing on it with all the lanes, and then it has a blue line down... Uh, the the path that you're traveling, and if it wants you to switch lanes, it will draw a little line going over into that lane. And if it's not safe right now, it'll keep that little red line showing it. Um, but when it makes the lane suggestion, you confirm it by pressing your blinker in that particular direction. And um, so it'll it'll do some things like uh, if there's a split in the lane, it will pick the correct direction in the split automatically. Uh, but you, if it's something where you have to explicitly make a decision to go off um, or to switch lanes or whatever, you have to press the blinker to do the confirmation. So uh, when you say that uh, you have to use your blinker in order to confirm it, are you just tapping your blinker down a little bit so that it doesn't end up sticking on? Or do you have to do the full? You, you can do it either way. It doesn't matter. Well, that's kind of nice. Because then you don't have to put it on, wait till you change the lane, and then turn it off. Yeah, it'll it'll do that for you. And also, if there's like a split 
in the freeway and it makes a decision, it will put the blinker on for you without you even touching it. Oh, nice. Okay. Now, uh, when you're saying that it only recognized the road lines about 80% of the time. Well, the, the correct lane to go in. I, I And it might be higher than that. And it might just be that I happen to be around a particularly t- tricky exit. Um, but that's that's just sort of how it seemed. Well, um, what I was wondering about was more along the lines of uh, how the roads are painted. Oh, it has nothing to do with that. Oh, okay. Because, I mean, I've noticed a whole lot of freeways where you have multiple lines. You have the actual lines that are supposed to be in place, and then you have the old lines which haven't been entirely taken off of the freeway. Oh, no, 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 no. It It's not like that. Where it sort of messed up for me was there's – I'm when I'm going back – home and there's uh, an off-ramp and there's the right-hand lane that goes off in one direction and then there's a, a left-hand lane that basically I I would be uh, it, it's the lane is you're not required to go off but you can and um, I have to put the blinker on in order to take the exit um, but I was worried that it might if I put the blinker on to take the exit that it might just go into the lane to the right of that instead because at the time when I when it wants me to put the blinker on, there is an extra lane to the right, um, and I, I it I'm not entirely sure if it just wasn't being clear or if it would have actually gone over. Um, but if I don't put it on, then it just won't take the exit at all. And then there's a, another place where uh, it wanted me to go and make lane changes to the right, and if I had actually done that, it would have taken me off of the freeway. And in, in, to a to a to a freeway that I didn't actually want to go on. So you're saying the main problem here is when you're making a right, but you're making the right from the second to right hand lane. Yeah, if I'm going to go off the freeway in the second to right hand lane, but at the moment it doesn't actually need to go off. That that was a situation where it had some trouble, and the other situation where it had some trouble is um, it knows in the future that I'm going to need to be like in the right-hand lane or the second to right-hand lane. Um, but before that, be, but before that, there are lanes going off to another freeway where if I'm in the second to light right-hand lane, I'm actually going off of the freeway. So it's thinking too far ahead, basically, in that situation, where at the exit where I want to go off, it's correct. Um, but, at the, but at the current moment in time, it would be the wrong lane to be in. I'm thinking that they'll be able to uh, work on that since I imagine you're disengaging autopilot at that moment. I don't I don't need to do that now. Well, because uh, from what I recall them saying a while back that when you disengage autopilot, they try to uh, figure out why you're doing that. Oh, oh, that's what you mean. I mean, I'm thinking that if there's enough if there's enough use cases where people are disengaging autopilot for that kind of turn, they're going to see why and they're going to probably prioritize work on that. Uh, yeah, well, in this particular case, they might still have that data because I'm not disengaging, disengaging autopilot, but I'm not confirming what their request is. And so uh, they should be able to tell that I did not do what they told me to do, and yet I still arrived at my destination okay along their prescribed route. So what I did is probably more correct than what they suggested. So I'm kind of curious how they would end up implementing a fix. Like... Uh... In the future, are they going to be flagging specific spots on their map to have different behavior? Or is it going to be something that's more general purpose intelligence? I'm hoping the latter, but suspecting the former. 
<laughs> uh, yes, the cynical developer in both of us. <laughs> and the next bit of, I guess this is still follow-up, is uh, did you see that the Model 3 performance was uh, disqualified for using a non-approved fuel? Yeah, I mean, it's I get it, but it's still stupid. Well, the thing is, like, it says in the rules that you can have a no more than one internal combustion engine, but it doesn't say you cannot have zero internal combustion engines. However, there are fuel requirements, and the fuel requirements are um, just unleaded gasoline or premium gasoline or whatever. Um, however, it does not say that you have to actually use the gasoline. Um, <laughs> um, and also, like, hybrid cars are allowed in there, and there are cars that you could put them in um, essentially pure electric mode, and those weren't disqualified, like the i8. Hmm. And so it seems like you just take this all the way to the edge and you get the Tesla. So why was the i8 not disqualified if the Tesla is? Because they can run on electric mode. And in that case, the fuel is is the same as the Tesla. The fuel is still the electrons. Does this mean full electrics like the uh, BMW i3 and the Chevy Bolt and whatnot would end up being disqualified as well? That's true, yes. Uh, according to their calling on that rule. Supposedly, this only came about because the guy who would have gotten, I think, second place complained. <laughs> and they were they were about to give the the guy the the podium. Oh, that's poor sportsmanship. Yeah. Come on. Supposedly, um, professional racing is sort of rife with this. Like they, the it's like it's not about how good a driver you are. It's about how nitpicky you can get with the rules. Like, can you cheat? Uh, how much you can cheat against the rules, along with how much you can get other people disqualified. It's like a lawyer off. Yeah, it's like a lawyer off. It's not a real race. The ra the racing is only secondary. Yeah, the litigation is the uh, star of the show. Yeah. So I, I thought that was sort of ridiculous, and hopefully they change the rules to explicitly allow uh, electric vehicles in their enthusiast class. So part of the th reason is they also went into the enthusiast class, which has these rules. Um, there's another like anything goes class that where they wouldn't have run into this problem. Um, you think there'll be an electric class at some point? Probably. Um, especially as electric vehicles start to trounce gasoline vehicles more regularly and they consider it sort of unfair. And then, oh, I guess the other thing with the Model 3 is they just released the uh, track mode. Did you see much about that? No, I haven't had a chance to look at that. Tesla has a track mode, and normally t Tesla's idea with the stability control, traction control, and whatnot is to keep the occupant as safe as possible. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have as fast a lap time as possible. But with the track mode, they allow a bit more uh, slip in uh, the wheels, and that allows them to do a little bit, little bit more rotation, um, like a little bit of forced oversteer in the beginning of the turn, and then eventually, and then it goes and grips a bit more, along with with a couple of other things like that that make the car go uh, faster around the track, be a bit more like what a experienced race driver would want. And they had uh, the guy 
from uh, that does a lot of the Motor Trend reviews. Uh, Randy Probst, I think it is. Is that how you pronounce his name? I'm just going to say Randy Probst because I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce his name. But he's a fairly famous uh, race car driver slash uh, performance car tester. Uh, he works a lot with Motor Trend. And a while ago, they Tesla showed him the track mode uh, that they had done. And uh, his basic response to that was, these guys should hire me. And so they actually did go and get his input on a whole bunch of uh, stuff relating to how the Tesla should be configured to take corners and everything. And it went from uh, being a, about a second and a half behind a Alfa Romeo Giulia Quattro Fragio, however you pronounce that. It, it went from a, about, a cup, about a second and a half behind it to about a, a second and a half in front of it, which is an eternity in racetrack times. And the interesting thing there is it now also beats uh it was also able to beat the motor trend best driver's car winner from 2011 which was a ferrari 458 around the track very nice track mode makes the model 3 performance quite quick uh though i must say they did also uh put different tires on it but they are still standard street tires they're not racing tires what i'd really like is to be able to go to a racetrack where they have uh, the exotic cars and just take a Model 3, put it in performance mode, and try driving around in it. Yeah, that would be really fun. You could ask Tesla if you could borrow one. Or maybe you could just or, or, or maybe you could just get a Model 3 at this point because they've ruined the Model S. Yeah, Tesla, if you're listening to us and uh, you don't hate us that much at this point, <laughs> feel free to contact me and send me a car. I- I'll take one too. I, I when my Model Three goes and gets servicing or something, you can let me borrow one. Yeah, want want us to love you? Send us a car. Oh, actually, um, maybe I can try and request a Model Three performance. I uh, if they have any loaners uh, when I'm taking my Model S in. They they they've given me a P100D Model X and a P100D Model S before, so maybe they'd be willing. Don't they add restrictions on the loaner cars? No. They they work um, at least the ones that I've had all work. Uh, they they're not like speed restricted or anything. Uh, I remember when I had one at one point, it was actually restricted to I think eighty five. Oh, interesting. Yeah, they didn't do that with uh, me. At least not that I could tell. Maybe on one of my cars, they one maybe on when they gave me a regular Model S, they did, but not when they gave me one of the um, performance ones. But this was supposedly before they made all their loaner cars, the performance versions. Oh, a funny thing there is like one time when I went there, I, I got a, a Model S, but it was uh, through Enterprise, since apparently Enterprise Rent-A-Car bought a bunch of Model S's just to use for uh, being loaners for Tesla tr- uh, servicing, which is really weird. Uh, and of course, since it's Enterprise, they went and bought the lowest end possible things. So like I had no autopilot or radar crews or anything like that which is kind of irritating there are no frills on any cars they end up getting yeah i remember renting i remember upgrading to an audi a4 at one point and uh it was pretty much like a base model a4 which smelled of cigarette smoke no less oh awesome yeah so that the the track mode on the model 3 looks very very tempting to try 
All right, it would be nice if they move it to the Model S, and hopefully they'll move it to the P100D after, maybe after they put in a new motor. Oh, another thing that the track mode does is instead of uh, being optimized for uh, range, uh, instead they optimized for uh, batter, uh, for cooling. They, they always basically have their cooling systems at full bore the entire time so that you can go lap after lap uh, and not overheat. Isn't that something similar to what the Model S does when you try and put it in launch mode? Aren't they cooling? Aren't they trying to cool the battery more? I don't know if they're cooling the battery or I think they're just conditioning the battery uh, when Hmm. when you put it into launch mode with the Model S. I don't think that they're explicitly cooling it unless it's already gotten warm. Uh, Because part of the thing is you want the the battery to be a particular temperature uh, to do the launch mode. A cold battery will, will give you worse performance as well. Right. But I mean, I would figure with the Model S that it would just be easier for them to uh, include that with that kind of mode, make launch mode and track mode pretty much the same thing on the Model S, because it has similar kinds of goals there. Track mode is uh, more of a sustained lap kind of thing, where launch is a drag race kind of thing. So there's slightly different objectives here. Yeah, okay, I could see that making sense then. So... Yeah, our other our other bit of uh, follow up here. Um, now that we're halfway through the show, <laughs> is the 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 new MacBook Air's GPU, Apple Apple. So the 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 new MacBook Air has an Intel UHD graphics six seventeen GPU, which I guess is a worse GPU than the old MacBook Air. Isn't it? It's also worse than the Mini, I want to say. Oh, it's definitely worse than the Mini. The Mini is the 630. Yeah. So how much worse is this than the Mini? Because, I mean, the Mini was pretty bad to start with. So I was looking for some benchmarks for the 617, and I was actually not able to find any. Were you able to find any? No. No, I wasn't. All I know is that it's bad. (laughs) When I when I go and I and it finds like notebook compare or whatever, um, all of the benchmarks were just like they just didn't run or whatever on the six seventeen or they don't have any listed, so it was difficult to actually find anything. I mean, is this the level of bad where you're going to have to go back to GL Quake and run time demos? Level of bad. <laughs> oh man, I I don't think it's quite that bad, but it's pretty close. I suppose. If their whole solution here is for you for you to use an eGPU, I guess it's not that bad. This is sort of the direction I think Apple is taking: is uh, we will use the cheapest, most power efficient GPU on board, and then if you want something that's more powerful, we have our Thunderbolt three connector, so you can get an eGPU. Uh, since people, they, I mean, I guess they figure. If you're running it in laptop mode and you're disconnected from anything, then using a powerful GPU would destroy your battery life anyway, and so it's just not worth it to even bother putting one in. So I guess that raises the question that uh, what is the condition of eGPUs on uh, macOS right now? Are you only able to use AMD chips? Or are you able to use older NVIDIA chips such as, say, the 1080? So this is actually kind of interesting in that uh, on Mojave, 
you can use only the AMD chips because the drivers, the NVIDIA drivers don't work on Mojave. But if you have a eGPU on, I don't remember if it's if the cutoff is Sierra or High Sierra, um, but on one of those, you can have an NVIDIA eGPU and it will work just fine because the drivers work for it. So uh, what is the limitation there? Is Does it have something to do with the driver signing or anything along those lines? Something like that. NVIDIA claims that they uh, submitted new drivers to Apple, but Apple hasn't bothered integrating them. So uh, say you decided to dual boot into Windows, what would happen there? So where my mind's even going with this is, well, gaming on macOS sucks anyway. Why not just... <laughs> uh, why not just not plug your uh, eGPU into whatever machine you have when you're in macOS mode, and then just when you boot into Windows there, bang, plug in your eGPU and have happy gaming time? I guess, and this is all assuming that you want to have everything on your Mac in the first place. I mean, they're like part of the reason I would even want a good GPU on my Mac in the first place is I don't want to have to boot into Windows or use a Windows machine in order to play games. I want to just go into Steam and play my games. Assuming that the game you want to play is even in Steam for Mac OS. And a lot of the times it is actually, especially with indie games. Um, and that's thanks to engines like Unity and Unreal Engine and everything being cross-platform. And so, so many developers use those engines uh, you sort of get cross-platform play for free. I mean, it's true, but then, then on the other hand, getting something like Skyrim, a- anything by Bethesda, uh, or also uh, Rockstar, mm-hmm. you're not going to be getting Red Dead Two anytime soon, right? For Mac OS, people that make their own engines. <sighs> I was thinking about the fact that the iPad Pro actually has a decent GPU built in, and. Uh, I, I yeah. realize why, because you can't uh, you can't plug an eGPU into your iPad Pro. That is definitely true, and its primary use case is uh, is portable. And uh, Apple took things into their own hands with the design of the chip as well. That's the other major thing is they're not relying on any sort of external vendor for the graphics. It makes me kind of hopeful that, um, especially with Apple developing their own GPU now, that Maybe even if they still continue using Apple CPUs, maybe they'll have their own uh, GPU that gets put into one of the future MacBooks that just sort of just blows Intel out of the water there. I just, I wonder what's up with Intel. Like, why does Intel just make crappy GPUs the way they do? I don't know. I think that a lot of the graphics people don't want to work for them is part of the problem. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the graphics people all want to work for NVIDIA, and so they have the best GPUs. The, the sad thing is they're falling behind on their CPUs as well, which is interesting because you would think that they would be able to attract talent there. But then isn't aren't there problems with their CPU a process thing? Like, I feel like what's happening is that so many of these other companies like, you know, Apple... Apple and AMD, they're not really, they don't really have their own fabs anymore and Mm -hmm. are outsourcing to other companies who are specifically doing fab work. 
And the combination of the two things makes it where the companies that run the fab are able to have a better process because they're focusing 100% of their energy on that. And then the companies that have the designs are pretty much just giving it to these, you know, these uh, dedicated fab companies. Mm-hmm. Where Intel, Intel is still, um, Intel still has their own fabs. Right. And they used to have the best fabs. Yeah, they used to have the best fabs By and the best lot. process. <laughs> mm-hmm. Supposedly, like, with the Intel fabs, like their ten minute nanometer is closer and perfor- is closer to uh, the seven nanometer from TSMC. But still, Intel's been having a hell of a time getting that process out the door. So, what I'm also curious about with Intel is that uh, Intel is leaning heavily into the modem game. That uh, you see them competing heavily with Qualcomm, and uh, and. Eventually, uh, Apple is trying to get Intel to be their primary supplier. And I think that specifically has to do with the patent issues with Qualcomm. Apple and Qualcomm are not happy with each other. You know what I'm kind of surprised about is that uh, all this time, Apple eventually ended up having their own CPU, and then eventually they designed their own GPU. I'm surprised that Apple hasn't gone the route of designing their own modem. So usually they only design their own things when they start getting frustrated by everyone else's stuff. And I think that they figure that uh, every that Qualcomm and Intel's modems are good enough for what they want to do, and there's no need to sort of push it further. As in, they don't consider the network performance to be an area where they need to have something that is way better than the competition, especially since that would require the networks to be better and they don't definitely don't want to build their own network. But it's not just network performance, it's also things like battery life that you have to factor into these things as but well. But are the Intel and Qualcomm chips like really that bad on battery life? For the current generation, I don't think they are, but then uh, I was reading an article today about how um it's going to end up getting worse because of 5G. Mm. which is uh, coming out the door either next year or 2020. Yeah, I saw that Apple was supposedly looking into the Intel chips for 5G. Yeah, I saw that on the Washington Post earlier today. I mean, I, I, I think it probably depends on their roadmap. And if they can show Apple that they're going to go in the direction that, they, that Apple wants, they will continue using their chips and otherwise they will make their own. Yeah, I was just thinking that if Intel is having uh, fab problems, that uh, Apple would be able to squeeze more battery life out of their modem with their own design if they're uh, sending it off to TSMC. Do that's our MacBook Air update that became another thing. <laughs> yeah, I guess the they it also moved from a uh, a fifteen watt to a five watt for like the CPU class. So basically now it is it is a wedge-shaped MacBook, essentially now. It is no longer a MacBook Air. Uh, worse GPU, uh, lower class. I mean, it, the, the CPU is faster, but that's only because it hadn't been updated in so long, um, since, because it's a, a lower power CPU now. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a MacBook now it, with, it, with everything except shape. Well, the good news now is that... Uh... The MacBook Pro can be updated next year and hopefully have more performance as a differentiating factor. I'm talking about like the the, the regular MacBook, the the one with only one port and whatnot. Oh right, yeah. This is this is what it's similar to. 
So uh, last week I had a chance to go to an Apple store and look at the new iPad Pros that they have out. And how did that go? Well, okay. So the iPad Pro, it has a really beautiful display. And I mean, overall, it's a beautiful tablet. It's closer to the iPhone 5 than anything else that I've seen from them in quite a while design-wise. It's kind of like a giant slab. Yeah, I heard that the new design looks a lot nicer. Uh, I agree. It kind of goes back to... uh, It's kind of like a throwback to their older design, which I think was Braun-inspired. Have you found that to be difficult to pick the thing up? Because before you had a place to like hold on to. No, not really. Because uh, generally they have um, they have it in place where it is attached to the keyboard, mm-hmm. and it's kind of in it's kind of at uh, an angle specifically made for typing. Mm-hmm. They made um, their setup makes the iPad Pro seem more like a laptop mm-hmm. because the pencil is there, and then the um, keyboard part is there with it. So it's pretty much it's demonstrating the unit as a one big cohesive thing, which honestly, it's kind of insidious on their part because um, those things aren't included <laughs> there. Yeah. So, I mean, you're looking at 800 or a thousand dollars to start for the, um, you know, for the iPad without a keyboard and without a pencil. And then of course it's $130 for the pencil. And I think $199 for the keyboard. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but um I have to say that uh, it's really pretty, and uh, 120 hertz, it's amazing. And I know that the uh, prior iPad had 120 hertz on its display, but uh, I haven't used my iPad in quite a while, so it's always jarring to go back to something that's 120 hertz. It um, it makes me think, like, okay, why isn't macOS like this? Mm-hmm. Why don't you, you know, why don't you have MacBooks, and why don't you have... Um, IMAX or anything else along those lines that are 120 hertz. But I mean, what I would really love to see is a new iMac or an iMac Pro or anything along those lines that's 5K and has 120 hertz. Because just um, being able to use it, I think it feels so much more fluid and nice. Mm -hmm. It seems kind of crazy that uh, it's on the uh, cheaper iPad Pro models compared to uh, getting a computer that's Anywhere from fifteen hundred to four thousand, five thousand dollars, and you're still stuck on a sixty hertz display. Yeah, hopefully the display that they're developing to go along with the new Mac Pro, the new Cinema Display, will be one hundred twenty hertz. But I'm not holding my breath. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm. Uh, I would be surprised if they go over to OLED, but uh, I I don't see why they'd be able to. I don't see why they would be unable to do that with a LCD display like uh, what's on the iMac right now. Mm -hmm. But I think a big part of it's probably bandwidth. Just the fact that it's, uh, you know, 5K as opposed to whatever the resolution of the iPad Pro is, which is a decent amount less, I would think. It's it's about half, right? Yeah. Well, a quarter of the pixels and half in each dimension. Yeah, which I guess that gives them a lot more uh, room to be able to just double the refresh rate. So um, the pencil, the pencil makes a lot more sense than it did before. Yay. Because, uh, yeah, because prior, I mean, I remember with the pencil that it was just uh, in order to charge it, you would have to 
take off the cap on back and plug it into the bottom part of your iPad, mm-hmm. which looked completely ridiculous. Yep. Now, now it just snaps on to one side of the iPad. Now, I noticed that... Um, Does it snap onto any side of the iPad or is it one specific side? No, it seems to be one specific side. Ah. And what's also, uh, what's interesting about it as well is that it seems to be at different points along the, uh, along that specific side. So it snaps in at, I want to say one to two inch intervals. Oh. Because what I imagine is it's a bunch of, it's basically a bunch of magnets lined up along the side. Right. But the way it does it, I mean, the fact that it does that is really slick because, when it snaps into place, it seems to snap into a place that makes sense for it to snap into place, mm-hmm. as opposed to it just kind of snapping anywhere like a uh, a magnet that you would put on a refrigerator. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it makes a lot more sense. There isn't the uh, cap on the back that mm-hmm. you um, that you would end up losing, which we talked about last episode. Yeah. The gestures take a little bit of getting used to. I mean, I could see eventually getting used to it with time mm-hmm. if I ended up having more than just uh, five, ten minutes with it. I still miss my home button on my iPhone. I, I don't find that I miss that at all. <laughs> Another nice thing about it is that the iPad Pro not having a home button, it seems to make a lot more sense to have it laying on the side in that it doesn't feel like it's laying on the side. Whereas on your old iPad, you know, an old iPad with a home button, it feels like you're kind of tipping it over. Where this, it seems to be just as at home on landscape mode as it is on portrait mode. That's good. But uh, anyhow, yeah, the pencil overall, it makes a lot more sense. And um, the only thing, like we discussed before, is I wish there was a lot more tactile feedback for when you're switching modes. Mm -hmm. It seems to be a little bit jarring. That, uh, oh, that, you know, one mo- one moment you're, you know, you're drawing on it and then you tap on it and then it ends up switching over to a race mode, mm-hmm. which the queue is the queue for switching modes is entirely left up to the, um, the software. Okay. So which, is it, does it have any haptic feedback when you switch modes or? I, I did not notice. Probably not then. Uh, I don't think so. Yeah. That would have been handy. Beyond the whole thing about, you know, the pencil being a nice novelty, and the keyboard, you know, the keyboard being okay and all that. Mm-hmm. It's nice from a portability perspective, but it just isn't great for pro users who aren't artists. Mm-hmm. Like, say, somebody like us who are developers. Right. Which gets to a little bit of a thought experiment that I've been having. I've been thinking a lot about what it would actually take for me to be able to use an iPad as a work machine. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I found that... I primarily miss on an iPad compared to what I have on a Mac is on my Mac. I have a, I have a whole bunch of uh, scripts that I run for specific tasks. Like for instance, when I'm about to commit my, um, the newest version of my software to a repository, I end up running scripts that do things like, for instance, clean up the code and try and format it a specific way Mm -hmm. and then do specific checks to make sure that, uh, make sure that I didn't include something overly stupid into the code base. Right. Basically, you know, basically build tests Mm -hmm. for lack of a better, uh, you know, for lack of a better word. And those tests are run locally, not on a remote machine. Right now I'm running it locally because I mean, I have PHP on my local machine, so I'm able to do a bunch of, I'm able to do a bunch of things on it. And then also there's the benefit of it. uh, If, 
my internet connectivity isn't the greatest, I can still run these checks locally. Mm -hmm. So there is that as a benefit. Now, for an iPad, in order to do that, since the iPad, sure, it has something like shortcuts, but that's not really scripting Mm -hmm. in any sort of way, shape, or form whatsoever. So what I realized here is in order to actually do my development on an iPad is I would have to get something like a Linode, you know, one of the smallest instances of Linode, move any of my source files over to that Linode, and then run the batch scripts there. Or set a SSH daemon up on your Mac and go into that. Yeah, I mean, that's that's true as well. But uh, the uh, problem with having it exclusively on my Mac is, okay, what if my Mac is not within internet range? What if my iMac is turned off for some kind of reason, like, say, for instance, a breaker or a power <laughs> outage or anything like that, which I ran into today? Uh-huh. Uh, it's a lot nicer to have it on something like Lin- Linode, because on Linode, you can guarantee it's uptime right. compared to, uh, you know, compared to just having it at home. But uh, I would move all of my development over to the Linode. I would have all of my batch scripts over there. Mm-hmm. So if I had an iPad, I would basically have something like Prompt or another sort of terminal program. I would have that open all the time. Mm-hmm. I would run my batch scripts from Prompt remotely over to that Linode. So you definitely want the cellular iPad in this case. Absolutely. I would want the cellular iPad for that in order to get any sort of work done because, well, you're not going to be able to do any sort of, uh, you would have limits on your local development anyway. Mm -hmm. But uh, basically, the three programs I find I would be using would be the terminal because I would do any sort of batch scripts from there. I would be connecting to a database through the command line unless there is some other sort of really good MySQL program on the iPad. Mm -hmm. And then... There would be Coda for doing uh, changes remotely via SFTP, which is basically SSH, and then uh, Safari for previewing changes. So it's a kludge. It is a major, major kludge, but it's possible, at least for me. For somebody like me who's a web developer, it would actually be possible to do that. Yeah. There are things that I haven't researched, like uh, I don't know if I wanted to do testing in some other sort of development platform, uh, what kind of services I would be able to use, like uh, if there's something similar to Parallels, but... uh, Like a go into a remote machine kind of thing? Yeah, kind of like a think of... uh, Think of Xterm32 back in the day, (laughs) where you could go into an X server um, from pretty much Windows. But yeah, something like that where I can pretty much have a remote access of a Windows machine, which is specifically set up for specific browsers Mm -hmm. that I can do tests on. I haven't looked into that yet, but realistically, my compliance testing is a small part of my job Mm -hmm. where if I went away for a couple weeks, that wouldn't be a huge deal. It wouldn't be the end of the world. But I'm thinking of it in terms of, okay, what can bring... uh, what can bring my development usability up from 97% of the time on an iPad to, say, 98 or 99% of the time? So you wouldn't be bothered by having such a tiny screen? Yes, I would absolutely be bothered by having such a tiny screen. Okay. It, it's it's uh, it, it honestly, it sounds terrible. <laughs> it sounds, uh, I mean, the whole thing sounds like a complete nightmare. And it's like, I think of people like... Uh, Federico Vatici, I, I don't know how he does it. Mm-hmm. It just seems, you know, it just seems nightmarish to me. Yeah. But that being said, I'm considering actually doing it. 
I'm not so much not so much for running it on an iPad all the time, but I was thinking of switching my development to some sort of Linode or whatnot that would do most of these scripts remotely. Mm-hmm. And uh, the reason I'm thinking about that is okay, um, it's easier to back up, it's easier to restore, yeah. and I would be able. It would be a lot easier to set up any sort of machine as a uh, as a test machine. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason I'm even thinking of doing this is uh, we're probably going to be going to Europe for a decent amount of time next year. And I'm thinking about, okay, what happens if, God forbid, my computer dies or my computer's lost or anything along those lines right. happens? That it would be nice to be able to uh, have somebody's spare iPad that I could repurpose if possible. Or worst case, go to an Apple store and buy uh, buy one of those school-type iPads. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, just suffer along that for a couple weeks in order to just do what I need to do emergency-wise. Yeah. If you can go to an Apple store anyway, you could probably just get another Mac <laughs> well, yeah. laptop. Yeah, yeah, but then it's, uh, yeah, I suppose so. But then you wouldn't be able to perform this thought experiment. Yeah, it's, I mean, <laughs> that's true. I mean, it is an interesting thought experiment. And I just, uh, I think of the old USC days where uh, so many of my projects were on uh, one basic giant server that they had. Yeah, that that you could go and get all those done from anywhere, yeah. So, I mean, I'm kind of in the enviable position where it's within some sort of feasibility for me. For you, I don't know if it's anywhere remotely possible. It depends on what I'm doing. I have lots of different projects. Okay, that's fair. Probably about eighty percent of my stuff is uh, via terminal, so I can do that one. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I realized this is what developer hell is: having an iPad Mini as your only development machine <laughs> for eons and eons. <laughs> can you attach a keyboard to an iPad Mini? Uh, I would through Bluetooth. Maybe, yeah. You can probably do it with, can you do it with your iPhone as well? Develop on your iPhone. Develop on your iPhone uh, SE. On Honestly, it's possible because Coda works on, on the iPhone? An iPhone. Coda works on an iPhone. So I've actually gone in and I have, uh, I have connected to a server through my iPhone and made changes to a file. I ended up switching tasks over to prompt and running a command via the command line there and it was hell you sure you don't want to work on that uh iphone full time (laughs) oh if i made twice as much mobile first yeah (laughs) right if i made twice as much money maybe all right so is there any more ipad stuff i'm debating it i'm debating whether or not to get one just for the purpose of seeing if i can do this (laughs) well uh if you do end up doing this, you you will will have a podcast in a future date talking about uh, how hellish it actually is. <laughs> well, you know, I could always just uh, decide to dedicate my development to an iPhone for a day. See how, how much or more likely how little work you got done that day. How much hair you've lost. Tune in, that uh, anachronistic phrase, next week for... Uh, me talking about my new Mac Mini, uh, talking about how we go and set up new computers and VMs and stuff, 
and uh, an update on the vector with our product over time segment. Thank you to our 100 quadrillion Patreon subscribers in the Andromeda Galaxy. Our last episode was so good that we ended up increasing our subscriber count. Thanks for listening, and you can visit us at alh.fm. And yeah, well, we'll talk to you next week. Bye, everyone. Five more episodes till we open the dark portal to hell. (laughs) (laughs) But we need to be on uh, Phobos first. (sighs) I want to replay Doom. Or depending on which uh, Doom you're in, possibly Mars. Depending on what your gravity levels, what kind of gravity levels you want. Were you referring to Doom 3 or Reboot Doom? Uh, Doom 3 would have been... Both Doom 3 and Reboot Doom, I believe, were on Mars, but the original Doom was uh, Phobos, I believe. You know what we should do as an experiment? We should have, like, um, you know how Robot or Not ended up having, like, five-minute episodes? Well, if we do that, we should just create a completely new podcast with five-minute episodes. No, no, no. We should do a podcast with 30-second episodes. 30-second episodes? Yeah, 30-second episodes. We record like 20 of them at once. <laughs> this is what I'm angry about today. You know, oh, Tesla's news updates. They stink. <laughs> Podcast end. It stinks. <laughs> right? That, that's exactly what I was going for was uh, the, critic. the critic. It's short enough. <laughs> it's short enough where we're not going to annoy people. Mm-hmm. At least to the same degree, unless we say something so decisive, like, uh, you know, like Robot or Not. Well, I think part of the appeal to Robot or Not is it pisses people off, right? Like, I wonder how he's going to make me angry next time. Yeah. So you're hate listening to Robot or Not at this point. Pretty much. Like, you're wrong, Syracuse. Wrong. <laughs> hmm, like, I, I'm just trying to think of uh, what could he troll people with the most? Skynet, not a robot. No, he he doesn't think. I think he may have actually done that and said not a robot. Did he actually? Uh, okay, now I'm just now I'm just running into this by accident. <laughs> well, they've stopped actually talking about robots like uh, two years ago. <laughs> now it's like their most recent one was on soup. Like, is, what is <laughs> what? soup? What? <laughs> They're like, the, 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 is, is, is it, if ice cream has melted, is it soup? What, is, what do you need to be a soup? The, the, the podcast has become like define a thing and determine what things are this thing and which things are not that thing. So they have like, like bagels and pizza and soup. And I'm sure there are, there, there are ones that are not food related, but those are just the ones that come to mind. So have they actually had an episode yet on whether or not a Pop-Tart is a form of sandwich? Yes, I think they have had a sandwich episode, and Pop-Tart came up as an example of something that is not a sandwich. You know what we should do? <laughs> have a show where our sponsor read is longer than our episode? No, no, no. What we should do for our tiny podcast <laughs> is buy sponsor space on Robot or Not. <laughs> <laughs> if you like tiny podcasts, listen to this. Yep. Especially if you want to hate us. Just like Robot or Not, I know that you're yelling at Syracuse right now. I know it. If you want to yell at me too, listen to, I have no idea what we'd even name it. 
<laughs> we pay the song a day guy to do our intro for this tiny podcast, <laughs> but we tell him that it has to be under two seconds. <laughs> Your time is important to us. There we go. That's a good name for the podcast. Your time is important to us. I kind of want to do this.